We're continuing our series today uh, on the church as an uncommon fellowship of faith. And as we've mentioned a few times already, this is Pentecost Sunday, the time we uh, commemorate and remember that the church is a creation of the Spirit, that God formed the church by pouring out His Spirit on the church. And so if we're going to have any hope of, of being and doing some of the things that we've talked about, the church being called to be and to do, to be a community of radical grace and uncommon hospitality and radical generosity, if we're going to be those things, we're never going to be able to be it or to do it under our own power. The church can only live up to her calling and her vocation as she recognizes that she is formed by an uncommon power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own... Sorry, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right. You can be seated. Begin with this. British missionary uh, and eventual bishop of India, Leslie Newbegin, said this of Pentecost. He said, there are three great festivals in the Christian year, three occasions when we are invited to celebrate the great events of our salvation. They are Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. But we all know very well that it is only the first two of these festivals which are celebrated with real joy and enthusiasm in our churches. Christmas and Easter are great occasions when even the most careless Christian feels an obligation to come to church, and when there is joy and happiness in every Christian home. But the Feast of Pentecost passes almost unnoticed. The outside observer of our churches would surely conclude that while it means a great deal to us that Jesus was born for us and died and rose again, the coming of the Spirit means very little or nothing to us. And it's true, right? Nobody, when you, nobody said to themselves this morning, hey, we better be sure to get to church early this morning. It's Pentecost, uh, so it's going to be extra crowded. We've got to get there early if we want to get our seats uh, on Pentecost. Nobody thought, do we have, a, do we have the right Pentecost dress uh, for our child? 
In fact, probably some of you didn't know it was Pentecost until we said something about it, right? And so, Newbegin says, you would assume that the coming of the Spirit means little or nothing to us. And yet in the New Testament, the coming of the Spirit means everything. It means everything. It means, uh, for the authors of the New Testament, for Luke uh, in, our, in our passage this morning, the pouring out of the Spirit means that Jesus is risen, that he's ascended and sits at the right hand of his Father, that he rules all things, and that he has poured out his Spirit, his very presence and power on his people. And then that presence flows to them and through them and enables them to spread his presence to every corner of the earth. The Spirit means, in short, that the kingdom of God is here, that His presence is here, that the power of the King is here. And without the Spirit, the church's mission is impossible. The church's vision uh, is just a naive dream. But with the animating wind and fire of the Spirit, the church uh, is capable of being the redemptive presence of God in the world. Now, of course, uh, the church, not just our church, but the church throughout the, uh, the ages, has been very good at figuring out ways to do church, to be church, apart from the life-giving presence of the Spirit. Right? Churches uh, are very good at this. We're good at, instead of reliance on the power of the Spirit, to figure out uh, ways to manage and manipulate Amen. ourselves into the life of the church, right? We can, uh, we can instead of uh, relying on our weakness and the Spirit's power and leadership, we can just adopt uh, the best of uh, contemporary business practices and do business and do leadership under our own wisdom or our, under our own strength. We can trust in the latest marketing techniques for the growth of the church to get visitors in the door. And then we can rely on, on the skill of skilled entertainers to keep people coming back to see what's going to happen next Sunday. Right? We, can, we can rely on the wisdom or the eloquence of preachers to keep people coming. And in a pinch, we can even rely on good old-fashioned moralism and guilt to get people to behave the right kind of ways, to act right. And if you squint hard enough, that can actually look like people's lives being changed. But in reality, divorced from the power of the Spirit, the supernatural life of God within the people of the church, all of those things are hollow. And they fall short of really and truly being what the church is meant to be. So what would it look like for us as a church, for us as a fellowship of Christians, to really and truly live in such a way that unless the Spirit is living in us and flowing through us and His presence and power working uh, in our mission, to live in such a way that unless the Spirit is in it, it can't possibly succeed. Unless the Spirit is among us, that all of our dreams and plans fall flat because of the types of dreams that we can't do under our own steam or under our own wisdom. Only then, only when we're truly relying on the power of the Spirit to enable and to bring life to the church can we really be what the church is called to be. Only then can we be an institution that really matters. Right? There's other organizations in the world that can approximate what a church does. Right? There's other groups that, 
that are about self-help and self-improvement. There's other groups that are about doing good in your neighborhood. There's other groups that are about being friends with one another. But it's only the Spirit that brings the church the life to be what only the church can be, which is a power to bring the world from death to life, to bring individuals within the church from death and sin into life and goodness and righteousness. And so what we are going to look at this morning is that the church that we've talked about as an uncommon fellowship can only be an uncommon fellowship because it is animated by an uncommon power. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hold our church's vision in one hand. We're going to look at the three elements of our church's vision. And in the other hand, we're going to hold the story of Pentecost, the story of the Spirit poured out and people hearing the gospel in their own language. And we're going to seek to understand how this vision is dependent on this story. Uh, of Pentecost. For those of you uh, who, are, who are new with us, or maybe, it's, maybe honestly for some of those who've been here a long time, here's our vision. <laughs> here's our vision statement, right? You got to have a vision statement. So here's ours. That our vision as a church is that by God's grace and for his glory, we would cultivate three things. Personal transformation in Christ, right? The transformation of individual lives in Christ. An uncommon fellowship of faith. You've heard that one. In the flourishing of our neighbors in Christ. Those three things. Uh, personal transformation, an uncommon fellowship, and the flourishing of our neighbors. And I would submit to you that each one of those is impossible and empty without the power of the Holy Spirit. First, personal transformation is absolutely impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the core of our vision is really what the core of every vision of every church should be, to make disciples of Jesus, to see men, women, and children come to understand the gospel of God's grace in such a way that their lives are transformed by their love, by, by his love, and they begin to give their life and love towards God and towards their neighbors, that people would become disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, that's not particularly novel. Did you know that before about 1980, no church on earth had a vision statement, right? We didn't know we were supposed to before 1980. Um, and so we had to settle for Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. <laughs> Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right before, before they told us we needed vision statements, we had one. Go and make disciples. Make disciples. Dallas Willard describes a disciple as someone who by grace and by choice is living their everyday life as an apprentice of Jesus. Who, who's learning from Jesus every day in ways big and small what it means to be, there, to be his follower. What it means to be a student as a follower of Jesus, or a, or a husband, or a wife, or a parent, or a plumber, or a lawyer, or a nurse, whatever it is that God's called you to do, to learn to do it under the reign of Jesus as his apprentice, learning under him. And at its core, that's what we exist to do, is to help people learn how to be disciples, to, to teach them the implications of the gospel for their soul, for their life, for their relationships, that is uh, what we are about. 
Interestingly, uh, this uh, properly understood, this calling of, of entering into people's lives with the goal of transformation, you know, the Bible would say, basically, that's impossible. The church is the only organization on earth that I know of that adopts as its mission something that is actually impossible for it to do. The scriptures tell us that the human heart, dead in sin, is cold and stubborn and lifeless. And real transformation, real growth and change is actually impossible for a human heart. Right? How, does it, how do you think it feels to wake up every day as a pastor knowing that your job is something that you cannot do? Right? It'd, it'd, like, it'd be like showing up for a job at an auto manufacturer and they tell you on training day, hey, we got to be honest, We've never made, we don't know how to make a car. You can't do it. You can't do it. But the church is given a vocation that in and of ourselves we can't do. No amount of brilliant preaching, uh, no amount of courageous uh, love or courageous evangelism or sacrificial social work, none of those things can cause a dead heart to come back to life, let alone a collection of dead hearts in a neighborhood or in a city. And so the work is actually impossible Unless, unless there really is a Holy Spirit who really does bring life, new life, to dead things. Right? The gospel at its core isn't a story about how people who aren't quite as good as they should be learn some tips and tricks to get a little bit better. It's not a story even about how very bad people become good people. It's a story about how dead people become alive. How something that wasn't alive before gets up and becomes newly alive. That's what the gospel is about. And it's only possible if the mighty wind of the Spirit blows. In the story that we read, we're told that the Spirit came like the mighty, the sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where the disciples were sitting. This image, this picture of the Spirit as wind is really the principal way that the Bible talks about the Spirit, as wind. Uh, the, the two words that are used for, for Spirit, ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek, those are your two biblical words for Spirit. And they both also mean breath or wind, right? It's like the, the, in the language itself is trying to communicate to us that the Spirit is like breath. It's like wind. But it's the wind of the Spirit that in Genesis chapter 1, we're told, hovered over the face of the earth when it was formless and void, that it was that power of the Spirit as wind that brought the first creation about. That it's the Spirit as breath that God himself breathed into Adam's nostrils to bring him from a simple lump of matter into a man who bore the very image of God. That it was the breath of the spirit by which God created our first parents, right? It's the breath, the wind of the spirit of God that Jesus explains to Nicodemus in John chapter three, when he's trying to explain to him that he has to be born again, that he has to go from death to life. He says, the spirit blows where it wills and you don't see it, but you see its effects. That the spirit is the one who brings fruit. It brings life. It brings uh, new life. But you don't see where it's coming. There's no predicting when it comes. But he comes where he wants, and he brings life as wind. It's the spirit as wind that Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 37, has this, this famous vision 
God takes them out to a valley of dry bones. And he says, prophesy to them. And I'll cause my wind to blow, my breath to blow. And they'll come to life again. And Ezekiel does, and they do. Right, that Ezekiel 37 is actually a key passage for understanding Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost passage. Because there, God blows his wind on the dry bones, they come to life. And the rest of the chapter proceeds to tell about God gathering his people back to Jerusalem, restoring them back to new life, breathing new life into them, exactly as he does here in Pentecost. And so it's only the life-giving wind of the Spirit that enables people to go from death to life. The same Spirit that brought creation life in Genesis 1 brings new creation life into our lives when we hear the gospel, when we hear uh, this incredible good news. It brings people from death to life. You know, uh, Augustine, the great fourth century saint, in talking about the Trinity, he said this. He said, in every love relationship, there's always three elements. There's the lover, the one who's doing the loving. There's the beloved, the one who receives the love. And then there's the love itself. And Augustine said that the Trinity is like that, that the Father is the lover, the source of all love. That the Son is the beloved, the only begotten, beloved Son of the Father from eternity. And the Spirit, He's the bond of love that knits the Trinity together. And so when, when God says that you have the Spirit, that the Spirit lives within and among you, He's saying that the very same love between Father and Son now knits you into the love of the Trinity. Right? We saw this over and over again in the Gospel of John, if you're with us through that sermon series. Right? That Jesus prays, He says, Father, you love them with the same love with which you loved me. Amen. Right? So this is the power that changes a human heart from death to life is the power of knowing that you are God's beloved. That if you are in Christ, His goodness, His righteousness, His status before the Father as the beloved Son becomes yours and it invades your heart. And it has the power to change your dry, dead, cold heart into a heart that's soft and alive, that knows the depth of this love and is then able to love God and others in return. And so if we are going to be about personal transformation, it is hopeless without the power of the Spirit. Yes. Secondly, we're about uncommon fellowship, which is equally impossible apart from the Spirit. Listen, one of the, the main ways to understand what's going on here in Acts chapter 2 is in light of another story that happened way back in Genesis chapter 11. That's the story of a time when all the peoples of the earth, this is after the flood, all of the peoples of the earth at that time were of one culture. They spoke one language. They lived near one another. They could communicate with one another. They had the same customs. And they pooled this shared knowledge, shared language, shared ability to build for themselves an idol, an idolatrous attempt for them to reach heaven under their own strength at the Tower of Babel. And God, seeing what they were doing in their shared wisdom, shared communication, shared power and skill, came down and intentionally frustrated their ability. He tore down their tower 
As if to say, no, no, you can never reach me by your own wisdom, your own skill. You're never going to assert your power against me. And so he frustrates their attempts. And then he confuses their language such that they can no longer communicate with one another. This is really in the scriptures the beginning of different cultures within the earth. At this point, the human family is broken up into different ethno-linguistic groups so that people begin to speak their own languages, value their own things, have their own religions. Then under the fragmenting of this curse at Babel, it's both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because God intervenes to keep us in our arrogance and pride from asserting ourselves against him. But it's a curse in that it brought a fracturing into the human family that alienated us from one another, so that now instead of viewing one another as brothers and sisters, we begin to view one another with prejudice. We begin to view one another through the lens of suspicion. And so we live as as different cultures, different languages. And here in Acts chapter 2, God begins to undo what happened at Babel. Right, The whole rest of the Old Testament is within all of these different ethno-linguistic groups. God chooses one, right, the people of Israel, Abraham's family. And he's working through them, through his covenant, to eventually bring his blessing, not just for them, but for the entire world. Right, Even though he's working just with them, there's all these promises of the other nations, the Gentile nations, streaming into the temple, streaming to worship the true God, laying down their false gods. But here in Acts chapter 2, God miraculously pours out his spirit on his church so that when Peter stands up to preach his sermon, everyone hears them, not in the confused languages of the world, but everyone hears them in his own language, in her own language, such that they can begin to understand, so that what was fractured at Babel begins to be brought back together at Pentecost. God, in a sense, is saying, no, you know, the human family is not going to be brought together through their arrogance, through their pride, through their ingenuity. The fractured human family is going to be brought back together through Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes friends where there were strangers, who knits a family together out of people who otherwise would speak different languages and have different practices and think one another weird. That he's bringing them back together. You know, this week uh, in our church office, something happened that happened uh, in business places uh, around the country. Uh, Your ordinarily hardworking and diligent church staff huddled together around a laptop computer to listen to an electronic voice say, Yanni. (laughs) Maybe, right? You may have seen this, right? It took over social media. There was a voice recording where people debated whether the voice was saying Yanni or Laurel, even though it was clearly saying Yanni. (laughs) And there's something about, there's something that people were debating about this strange little voice recording. Uh, If if you haven't heard it, save yourself several hours of your time and just skip skip the whole thing. They'll be on to something else next week. Um, But this week, this is what the internet told us we had to care about. And um, and so we're listening to it, and there's something about the recording on two different pitches of of volume, and depending on your ear and the speaker that it comes out to, some people think it's saying Laurel, others people think it's saying Yanni, right? The internet divided up into Team Laurel, into Team Yanni, right, based on what you thought it was saying. Well, this is the exact opposite of Pentecost. Uh, The the, the Yanni debacle is the the anti-Pentecost. 
Right? In that moment, everybody heard the same recording but heard different things and fractured as a result of it. At Pentecost, Peter got up to preach. And he began preaching the good news about Jesus. And people standing next to one another. You know, how did they all begin to know that they were hearing him in their own tongue? Right? Each one would only hear him in his own language. If you were there, you wouldn't have heard a thousand languages. You would have heard English. Right? You would have heard your first language. Maybe it's English, maybe it's Spanish, maybe it's French, but you would have heard your language. And so maybe they begin to hear Peter preaching and somebody goes, hey, that's really cool. He's preaching in Arabic. And the guy next to him goes, no, 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 no. He's preaching in Latin. I came from Rome. He's preaching in Latin. And slowly they all began to, to hear and to recognize, oh, no, we're each hearing the voice of God speaking the gospel to us in our own languages. Right? Each of them began to realize, man, this message must cross the boundaries that separate us. The boundaries of language and culture and class and religion. This message crosses over those boundaries. And you know, from the day of Pentecost on through to today, the, the church has been a boundary-crossing community. The gospel has been a boundary-crossing message. I read a study uh, once that said that of all of the religions on the face of the earth, Christianity is the only one that has never been able to be reduced to a particular language or ethnic group. Right? There was never a time, and there still isn't a time, where you could say, oh, you speak English, you must be a Christian. Or, oh, you speak Mandarin Chinese, you must be a Christian. Right? Throughout all of history, the, the praises and hymns of the Christian church have gone up to God in different languages. Right? For its entire history, the Islamic faith has been rooted primarily uh, in the Arabic-speaking world, right? It spread, matches largely the spread of Arab traders uh, across, the, across the earth, right? The Hindu religion has largely been restrained to the Hindi-speaking world throughout most of its life. But Christianity has never been confined to a single culture, to a single language, uh, to a single way of being. In fact, it enters into every culture, every culture, comes into Christianity and says, oh, there's parts of my culture that I have to lay down for the sake of Christ. Amen. There's parts of my culture that I'm learning to see with new eyes, and I see that they, they fall short of the culture of the kingdom of God. Right? And there's other parts of our culture that we're able to look at and say, oh, no, this part of my culture I can continue to celebrate and to live into. But into every culture, the gospel enters and calls us to lay down some of what separates us in order to come together in Christ. And if we are going to see that uh, as a church, if that's going to be not only a global reality, but a lived reality in this church, it is going to take the supernatural power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, uh, we exist for the flourishing of our neighbors. Right? We believe that it's the church's calling not just to exist for our own good, right? but for the good of our neighbors, for the good of those outside, of the membership of the church. And we see in Pentecost uh, that the Holy Spirit is a gift that's given, uh, not simply for the good of those gathered, but for those who are outside the church. We're told that thousands of people heard the gospel this day and came to believe and joined this early uh, fledgling uh, group of Christians. Remember where the disciples were the last time we saw them. They were cowering, hiding in fear in the upper room. And then Jesus appears to him resurrected right before he ascends to heaven. In, uh, this is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he pours out his spirit on them. In this tiny little group of 12 frightened, cowardly men who just days before were denying and abandoning Christ become the tip of the spear in the largest missionary movement the world's ever seen because they encounter the risen Jesus and he pours his spirit out on them. And then they have this ripple effect of mission from Jerusalem, the city where they were, to Judea, the, the, the region just outside them, to Samaria, the region to the north of them, and to the ends of the earth. Right by the end of the, the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome, the center of world power, preaching the gospel. And the gospel is going out to their neighbors, to those they didn't even know, to those they were intimidated by, to those who they thought strange. That the Spirit uh, is not just for us. It's to empower us for our mission to the world. You know, I think this is one of uh, the, the major places where we go wrong uh, as, a, as a contemporary church in thinking about the Holy Spirit. We tend to identify the experience of the Holy Spirit with a particular emotional experience, right? I was, I was worshiping God and the Holy Ghost came on me and I had a certain experience of, of joy or enthusiasm. Or maybe we associate the Spirit with a, with a feeling of comfort or peace. Right? And, and surely the Spirit is the comforter. He's the one who brings those feelings of God's nearness and presence to us at times in our life. But more than that, the Spirit of God is given to the people of God for His mission. Right? It's on the heels of the Great Commission that He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That God's presence is always lined up with God's purpose and His mission. And I, you know, as a, as, a, as a pastor, I have people come to me often saying, I want more of the experience of the Holy Spirit, right? God seems absent, or I want to grow in my prayer life. I want to grow in my, my experience of the Spirit. The single best thing that you can do in your life to know more of the Spirit's presence and power is to align your life with the purpose and mission of God, right? God loves to pour out His Spirit on those who will take their life and hold it loosely, and say, God, my life is yours. My purposes are your purposes. Right? If you, if you want to know the Spirit's power, step out of your comfort zone and love your neighbor. Step out of your fear and share, begin to share your faith with those around you. If you begin to live your life, as we, as, if we as a church align ourselves and live our life as we've talked about over the last few weeks, with open-hearted, vulnerable hospitality, welcoming the stranger into our midst. Come talk to me if you don't sense the Spirit's power and presence in your life as you do that. Stepping out into radical generosity, giving sacrificially to advance, uh, the, 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 to advance the movement of the church and the kingdom, to love your neighbor, and see if you don't feel and know the presence and power of God moving in you and through you as you align your life for the flourishing of your neighbors in Christ and in his kingdom. Friends, we are without hope, apart uh, from the mighty wind and powerful fire of the Spirit. If our hope for the fruitfulness and success of the church is on the gifts of its minister, the gifts of its leaders, uh, the demographics of our community, the, 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 uh, the genius of our marketing strategies, right, friends, we are, we are not going to get very far. But if we acknowledge our own weakness, 
our own foolishness, our own limits, and open our hands to receive the power of the Spirit, to say, God, unless your wind blows in us and through us, we can do nothing. Then something tells me we will know uh, the renewing and reviving Spirit of God in our church and in our ministry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long uh, to come alive to your grace, to your spirit, to your presence. We long to have that life flow in us, and not in us and stopping, but through us, into the streets of our neighborhood, into our cities, into our families, into our places of work. Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that you would help us to keep in step with your will, that you would help us not to quench your flowing, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives, in our character, in our church. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would know more and more the reality of your presence and your power. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would come more and more under your reign, under your kingship, to live by the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.